Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Puck. John, how are you today? Jack, I am so good. If I was any better, I wouldn't know what to do. I know one way you are is cold, because <laughs> today is, I think, our first oh. cold day. You know what I like, Jack? Everyone goes, oh my gosh, it got so cold. Guess what? It's winter. It happens every year. So, you know, t- today is a great day for it. It's a global warming conference because global warming conferences <laughs> always seem to fall on the coldest, snowiest days of the year. And, and, and fire up the private planes, fly to uh, some remote ski resort where it's already 10 degrees and, you know, and we'll have at it. Right, right. It's, you know, we, we, we're going to actually talk, we're going to talk about this later in the show, but the big annual get-together of global warming alarmists is happening. Yeah. It'll be happening when, when, when this is published. So over in the, the Middle East, so we'll be sure to talk about that. But like I said, it's a great time of year for it. The colder, the better for, for global warming. Now, whether they in Qatar or like uh, Dubai yes. or yeah, yeah. some, yeah, yeah, of course. Now, we are just coming out of a holiday weekend, Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving? Wonderful. It's very low-key as I uh-huh. get over this uh, condition I'm going through with my uh-huh. surgery and, and rehab. It was very low-key family, few friends, lots of good food. How was yours? Did you get a, it was good. A deer? Don't even talk to me about that. Oh, my deer hunting, which started out successful, Uh-oh. has been on a downward trajectory. <laughs> oh, so the season's not over yet. Although I have the next, I'm going I'm to go this weekend and the next couple of weekends. I have some other things that I have to do, right? Like go on vacation with my family, <laughs> and have, more important, than, than it, is, it is. Okay, it is. that's good. By the way, there was a big buck in my backyard this morning for breakfast. While mm-hmm. I was having breakfast. If you want to come to my house, everyone only if, if you hunt, or I, I suspect it's this way with everything. No matter what it is you do, the people who are not engaged in that thing seem to always like saying, "I saw this thing." I know, I that, know, uh, I, I know. But that's okay. I guess it's Fairfax County. They were arresting you so fast if you stepped out on my back porch with a a gun. So well, now it's kind of attractive. Yeah, <laughs> I like to keep it spicy. I love it. Anyway. Now, do you have plans for the holidays? Are you going to be doing anything? Staying close to home. Yeah. Daughter comes home. We hang out. We. I, want, I still want to cook. Despite I'll be going through all this fun stuff I'm going through, I still want to cook a big rib roast for Christmas. That's right. my thing. So, yep. Very good. That sounds good. We are going to be headed on a little vacation, so I'm looking forward to that. But we have a couple of, of episodes before we get to that point, right. so we'll, we'll talk more about are that. Are you going to the RV? No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> the RV is is parked for the rest of the year. Oh, very good. So anyway, so let's do our housekeeping first. Yep. Our email address, we have thepowerhour at heritage.org. I can't ask you guys enough. Please send me an email. Let me know what you th- how you think we're doing. If you have subjects you want to want us to discuss or people that you think would be interesting to for us to talk to, let us know if we're doing a good job, a bad job, whatever. And I promise you, I will get back to you. You will get a personal email from me saying, thanks, 
and maybe we'll strike up a discussion about whatever issue it is you're interested in. And so what was that again? It is thepowerhouratheritage.org. Good. Did I say it wrong the first time? No, it's oh, always okay. twice. You got, right. It's that radio thing, you know, right. repeat, repeat, repeat. Right, exactly. <laughs> now, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts on things like Spotify or, or wherever the Apple podcast thingy is. Wherever, you're, wherever you get your podcast, you can find us. But even better than that, just hit the subscribe button so you don't have to find us. Right. We'll just pop into your, yep. I guess, your inbox or whatever podcasts pop into. Um, so subscribe or find us. Yeah, and, The Power uh, Hour at Herd at Heritage. Yes, I didn't even tell you what the word I didn't even say that, I'm sorry. You, <laughs> you, can, you can search uh, Herd at Heritage. We're on that feed. You can search uh, The Power Hour Heritage, all of these things. You yep. can even go to Google and search those things and the podcast will come up. So make sure you, you check us out. Yep. So that's that. That's our, our housekeeping is done. Now, John, I am, I always do a, some self-indulgent shtick, but I'm going to cut, I'm not going to get into all that today because, what? yeah. Okay. First of all, I'm not sure how effective it is. I love it personally. Right. Well, I appreciate know. that. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, we have a really great guest this time. Someone that I've wanted to get on this show since we started. This is, you know, kind of a, a celebrity in this space. Oh, okay. Someone that the other side hates. Oh, even better. <laughs> someone that's been hor uh, tremendously effective in this space. Someone who has done it all, seen it all someone who has been a friend of mine for a long time and someone who I've always been able to go to to help understand the issues better. I'm thrilled to invite to the Power Hour Myron Ebel from the Competitive Enterprise Institute and who has done a million other things. Myron, thank or welcome to the Power Hour. Thank you, Jack and John. I'm glad to be on. So Myron, you're with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and but I saw in your bio, and I, you know, I know, that that uh, is coming to an end next year. You're sort of reducing your, your, your workload or whatever. So I'd like to, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just talk to you about, I've never sat down and just talked to you about some, you know, your career, how you got to where you were. Do you mind if we talk about that? I think folks would find that interesting. You've done so much. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it as zany and uh, amusing as possible. I don't know how it can't be either zany or amusing. So let's start with, how did you get into this, this business to begin with? Well, I was an eternal graduate student, and I uh, gave up on academics and moved from England to Washington, D.C., and decided to get into real politics rather than continuing to be frustrated with academic politics. And a few years after moving here, I got a job working on for grassroots property rights and wise use groups. And that suited me because I had decided uh, that the biggest internal threat to freedom and prosperity in this country in the late 1980s was the modern environmental movement and that the conservative movement was not paying nearly enough attention to it and was trying to equivocate with it in, in, very, in ways that were very damaging and, and in some cases disastrous. And since I come from rural, I'm a rural agro-American from the Intermountain West, from a federal lands area, 
I had a, a lot of personal experience of property rights and federal lands issues, so it, 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 it worked well for, for a few years. And I have been working in this general space ever since, but in 1999, I switched to more or less full-time to energy and climate. Now, you mentioned a problem, which is that too often the right engages with the left on environmental issues, and it always ends up just biting us. Do you think that's still a problem? How do you, how, how do you look at that? Yes, and it's transferred from the environmental movement to the global warming movement. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the I like problem, that you keep them separate. Well, you know, the, the environmental movement did not invent the, the so-called climate crisis, and they were rather slow to get on the bandwagon. But once they've gone on, now they're really welded together. You can't tell them apart. Right. But, uh, you know, I think the problem is that people assume that their opponents in the political sphere are transactional and that like like negotiating with a labor union they want something they want higher wages better benefits but not at the expense of sending the company into bankruptcy right the environmental movement negotiates in a different way first they want half of your loaf and as soon as you give them half or a third they then are in a better position to demand all the rest right so there's there's really no satisfying them i on on any issue you you know i've seen these federal lands lockup bills where conservatives who represent some area in the rural west will do a deal by which they agree to lock up some land in a wilderness area or some other designation in exchange for keeping another area open to resource production mm -hmm. and then as soon as that bill is enacted then the preservation groups come and say, well, well, that's really not enough. We need more because you people are evil and, you know, cattle grazing is bad, mining is bad, oil production is bad, timber production is, you know, we, we'd rather burn down our forests than, than manage them. So, you know, there's, there's just no way to negotiate with them. They, they, all, they want something that's yours, but then that's just the, the stage, the landing stage to go after more of what's yours. Yeah, you know, you see that with... Well, let me go back for a second, because I, I, was just at, I was just in a meeting. We were talking about the, what the energy and environment politics of a new administration might be, and conservatives versus Democrats, and, and, or Republicans versus Democrats, and it was with a foreign audience, so we, it was just sort of high-level uh, high discussion. And I pointed out in that, discussion that almost all of the um, statutes and regulate, I guess regulations as well, that we, that conservatives abhor today and fight against today were signed into law by Republicans. Like it's unbelievable to me how, how Republican presidents have put in place so many of the things that we're still dealing with today. And yet conservatives still flirt with the left on these types of issues. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Oh, yeah. I, I'd say in many respects it's gotten worse. We've got, you know, Representative John Curtis, who represents a conservative district in Utah, and he's leading the uh, so-called conservative climate caucus in the House. He signed up, I don't know, three or four dozen Republicans, and, you know, he's going off to 
Dubai to COP28. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is remarkable. And we, we just had a, a carbon tariff bill introduced by a couple of Republicans. So, and this is nothing new. I mean, you, we've been doing this for a long time, whether it was Warner, Lieberman, cap and trade bill. You know, Republicans have always sort of flirted with the left on this stuff because some, for, for whatever reason, um, they've been fed this line and they believe this narrative that in order to effectively govern, they need, and I hate this phrase because I think it is the, 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 the road to hell is paved by it. You need a seat at the table. And in order to maintain your seat at the table, you need to give a little now to get a little later. And this, that seat at the table has never left us in this space anyway better off. Well, absolutely. And of course, if you go back to the cap and trade bill, that was really came out of Senator John McCain's office. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't Joe Lieberman was tagging, the Democrat was just tagging along behind John McCain. And we had, you know, Senator President Bush back in 1992 going to the Rio Earth Summit and signing the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That is yeah. the big underlying climate treaty. And, and they came back and they said to conservatives like Senator, at the time, Senator Malcolm Wallop, who was leading the, the, the Senate against the climate treaty, said, oh, nothing to worry about. It's just voluntary. There's nothing mandatory that we've signed on to. Well, you know, here we are all these years later, 30 years later, and we've got mandatory commitments. Well, here's a, a public, what's a public announcement? What are they called? A public information announcement? What are, I know that's not the word, but we'll just call it that. Anytime, anytime a politician and or a bureaucrat tells you not to worry about something, it's just voluntary. <laughs> you can rest assured that within a decade, you will be compelled by force to comply with whatever that thing is. And you just gave an example, an example we're dealing with now across the country is the Energy Star program where this thing that was just supposed to be voluntary, we're just giving information, there's not going to be any compulsion here is being used as the very framework to impose these energy efficiency mandates on buildings and on communities across this country that it's going to make people poor, going to make America poor, going to make us less well off. It's just unbelievable, yet we keep falling for it. We are, Myron, conservatives are like, like Charlie Brown, and the left is like Snoopy with that football, and we go and kicking for that thing every dang on time. Why do we do that? Jack, you know, I, I want to just say that we doesn't include CEI, and I bet it doesn't <laughs> right. include Heritage. CEI has opposed all of these programs, voluntary or mandatory, and we've opposed the voluntary ones exactly for the reason that you gave. It's just a foot in the door to to move from, well, voluntaries work so well, now we need to make it mandatory. Or voluntary isn't working, so now we need to make it mandatory. It doesn't matter how it turns out, we're right. gonna need to make it mandatory. Right. And so any any regulation, any voluntary program that the government sets up should be opposed. My God, I hate it. And you're right, thank you for pointing that out. I should not use we, I should use, I should use they. But anyway, <laughs> I think the, the, the point stands. Now, I already got off track because I'm going to talk to you about a million things. I want to talk more about your career. There are two things that I know that you've done that I want to hear more about. And I'm sure there are others. I don't know if you have other highlights. The first is your experience with the Global Warming Conference in Paris in 2015. And I want to hear your experience about that for two reasons. One, that was a bit, 
a big just just to back up for a minute. Every year there are these global warming conferences that take place in some big cosmopolitan city in the whole every rich liberal flies their planes into the, in, into the into the the city and they decide the future of humanity regarding global warming. And these are called the Conference of the Parties and the Paris one is a big one, COP15 because that was where the Paris Agreement was was hammered out. But the reason I want to talk I want to talk to you about it because of that, but also this is when I knew you were a celebrity Myron your picture ended up you, these these pictures that left wingers make whenever they really hate someone and say they're a criminal or wanted or whatever and they make you look really ugly although they did not succeed with your face let me just say that right now and then they plaster it all over the mail all over the newspaper boxes and the the street signs and everything and and you got that treatment and i'm curious a what was that what can you talk us through that experience a little bit both cop and why that was important and how how that sort of fit into your your career and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> well, it didn't get me a salary raise as I suggested it should. Look, yeah, the left, and this includes the environmental movement and the, the global warming movement, they they can't argue on the issues or the facts, so they try to demonize their opponents. And that's why, you know, at one point I think was it Rolling Stone or, or one of these big magazines had a little photo of me and a bunch of other climate criminals and said that I'd <laughs> received $12 million from the oil industry. <laughs> Some of my favorite ones. I know I, I am compared to you and but an ant, but I've been <laughs> accused of such things myself. If I, if, I, if I had the money that I've been accused of having lined my pockets, I would be rich. You would be, I would imagine, like it would be like, you, Musk, and, and, yeah. and Zuckerberg. Yeah, well, it, it was funny when I, I brought this publication home with my little tiny photo, and it had Jim Inhofe's photo and some other people, and it had the $12 million that I'd received from Big Oil or <laughs> King Cole. And one of my children, one of my younger children, said, Daddy, where, why can't, can't I have a pony? And then, then she thought about it for a few minutes, and then she asked, Daddy, why can't we get our roof fixed? <laughs> and so, yeah, look, they, the left demonizes people. I, I wasn't the only one who had a poster in Paris, and I've had posters at other events as well with my photo and, you know, wanted or criminal or whatever. I, I don't think that signifies very much. I would say this about Paris. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 was the first big chance to save the world from global warming, and Al Gore brought it back from uh, Kyoto in Japan, and then President Clinton didn't send it to the Senate for ratification, and then President Bush was elected, and he said, I'm not going to send it to the Senate for ratification, which I think was a mistake because the reason Clinton had not sent it was because it would have been defeated. It takes a two-thirds vote to ratify a treaty. That's how important treaties are. So then we get to Copenhagen in 2009, and that's the next big chance to save the world. And President Obama, Secretary Clinton, Hillary Clinton flies in, and then President Obama flies in, and the whole thing collapses. Mm -hmm. And so the third big chance to save the world was Paris in 2015. And at that one... 
President Obama had learned his lesson, which was the United States, I cannot negotiate this as a treaty because the Senate will never ratify it because it under, it's against the interests of the United States. And so what he did was he, he kept saying it was really just a voluntary agreement, just an executive agreement that he could sign as president and enter the United States into it, but it would have no, it was voluntary, it would have no teeth, it couldn't be enforced. And we argued against that. CEI, my colleagues, Chris Horner and Marlo Lewis, did, did the work, but they, they wrote a fantastic paper explaining that any international agreement, first of all, it is a treaty and it has to be ratified, and secondly, even if you pretend that it's voluntary, it can still have teeth once you get into court in the United States. Because a judge can say, oh, well, you know, we've entered into this agreement, and so we have to do these things, even though Congress has never said you had to do these things. So we really argued against it. And then if you look on the, the Paris Climate Treaty's website page on, the, on unfccc.org, uh, the first sentence says the Paris Agreement is a binding international treaty, but everybody in the world pretended it wasn't at the time so that we could get into it. And, you know, President Trump, bless his heart, promised in his campaign in 2016 to get out of Paris, and he kept that promise on June 1st, 2017. I was there in the Rose Garden when he gave his speech. It was uh, hot that day, wasn't I it? I got sunburned. It was, it was <laughs> great. It was the best sunburn I'd, I've ever had. But he did it in the wrong way because, as we pointed out, as my colleagues Marlo Lewis and Chris Horner pointed out in their paper, uh, the treaty, uh, there, are th there are three ways to get out of it, and the worst one is the one that the president chose, President Trump, which is he treated President Obama's entry as valid, and then he as president, took it back. He unsigned it. What he should have done is he should have sent it to the Senate and said, I want your advice on this treaty. It is a treaty, and I want your advice on it. At that point, the Senate would have said no or wouldn't have voted on it, and that would have been the end of it. And President Biden, when he got elected, could not have gotten us back into it by sending a letter, which is what he did. And then President Biden made another commitment to reduce emissions, President Obama made one, and then President Biden made a second one to reduce our emissions, and they have no legal force. They're just presidential fiats. They're just, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have declared that we will reduce our emissions. Well, Congress has never voted to reduce emissions, has never agreed to the terms of the Paris Climate Treaty, and yet the Biden administration goes ahead as if it's real. And to clarify, we're talking about CO2 emissions. CO2, not, greenhouse yeah. gas emissions, the things right. that, the, the carbon dioxide that is the necessary product of burning coal, oil, and natural gas, or burning anything else for that matter. But burning things that we dig up from the ground that isn't in the, isn't in the, the biosystem now, it's underground. So we dig up coal, oil, and natural gas, we burn it, and that adds carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And society gets rich. And society gets rich and the planet greens up because CO2 is necessary for plant photosynthesis and we're at a very low point in geological time in terms of CO2 levels in the atmosphere. 
And so the little bit that we've added since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution has led to a tremendous greening of the earth, much higher food production, and uh, general well-being. Well, there you go. Now, I always like to, to clarify when we're talking about emissions, about CO2 emissions, that we're talking about CO2 and not broader emissions. Not pollution. I think, not pollution. Yeah. yeah. That is a... That people on the right can some sometimes get caught uh, supporting things that they that they shouldn't because they're not being they they aren't using the right words or they, that's right. they, that's they right. get the words mixed up. Carbon pollution is what the left has has <laughs> dreamed up for this. Right, and and then they show pictures of everything except carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. Yeah, to, which is uh, which is a lot. Well, you can't see CO two. Right, it's it's invisible. It's right. like oxygen or nitrogen. There's one other highlight from your career that I wanted to, to just mention, and I, I guess it's similar. Maybe when I say highlights, these are the things that I know that you've done, Myron, that had just driven the left crazy and made them say crazy things about you. And I know that that's something that it, there's always a, a base load of Myron hate that exists on the left, but every once in a while you'll get, you'll get doing something that, that peaks that, that <laughs> load of, of Myron hate. And the other one is when you were named the, the head of Trump's EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, transition. I remember when that happened, and they went apoplectic. They, the, the left could not believe that you would be named to such an important position. I was wondering if you could walk us through that a little bit and some of what that experience was like. Yeah, well, it was interesting, and I hadn't expected it. I, I didn't pay much attention to the 2016 campaign, and I I couldn't, since I'd never watched Donald Trump's TV show and I, I avoid the debates like the plague, I couldn't figure out why he kept winning. But in in the spring of 2016, he finally, you know, most campaigns have big policy shops and they, they work up, they get a whole team of outside experts and, and important people to come up with white papers to fudge all the issues and why why what the president what the candidate had, had says on the in the campaign that they can't really do it when he gets elected because it's too hard or mm -hmm. you know but Trump wasn't that way he he made promises and so in the spring of 2016 after he was just about ready to win the nomination he actually started a policy shop and at that point he started to give policy speeches and he made a number of promises to the electorate and in, in August of 2016, uh, the head of his, the policy side of his transition left an, a message on my answering machine, which I, I was out of town and I didn't bother to listen to it. And then he left another message, which I didn't bother to listen to. And then he finally got a hold of me live and he said, you're a hard person to get a hold of. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm really lazy and I don't listen to my messages. And he said, well, you know, Mr. Trump, I would like to invite you to head the uh, EPA transition team for the Trump campaign. And I said, well, you know, why? <laughs> I mean, I've never worked at EPA. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert in the, the laws that EPA uh, uh, enforces, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Superfund, et cetera. Uh, that sounds like a heck of a resume to me. That's the exact kind of person well, needed well, to, to put that I, you together. Know, it, you know, most of the transition teams, and I think, Jack, you were involved. I was, yeah. Uh, most of the transition teams were headed by people who had 
uh, a lot of experience with the particular department or agency, uh, but not EPA. And why is that? Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but here's what the, the head of his policy effort said to me. He said, well, Mr. Trump believes that we have to revive the economy, and the only way to do that is to get rid of the overly burdensome regulations that are just stifling economic innovation and activity. And I said, well, I agree with that. And he said, and Mr. Trump believes that EPA is the worst and that, that, <laughs> that unless we can take on the EPA head on, we're not going to be able to revive the economy uh, and, and we really have to get rid of these regulations. And I said, well, I agree with that. And then he said, and Mr. Trump has even said at, a cam at campaign appearances that we ought to think about abolishing the EPA. And I said, well, I agree with that. And he said, well, that's why I've called you. And so my effort in the transition, and this was all new to me because I'd never, I'd, I, well, I'd been in the, the kind of a dole advisory committee in 96, God knows why. And, well, he wasn't a Bush. That's the first, that's, you know, it's a big, that's a big recommendation. And so I, I learned a lot, and we put together a good team, which was not a team of, of EPA insiders or lawyers. It was a team of people who basically agreed with the mission and had some skills to figure out how to write a document that would implement now President-elect Trump's promises once he came into office. And I think we did a pretty good job. And of course, like most transition documents, it may still be worth reading, although it's privileged and confidential, so I can't share it with anybody. But on the other hand, it was pretty much ignored by the new, by, by the president's pick to be the EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt. And by the way, I worked on the transition. A lot of people want to get into the transition because they want to get a job in the administration. I worked on the express agreement that I wouldn't be considered for any federal government job. And because I just, you know, I wouldn't do well dealing with federal bureaucrats. And I don't like to tell people to do things if they don't want to do them. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a libertarian. And so I work for a, a libertarian organization. But, you know, I think it was valuable. And I would say this about President Trump. He had lists of all those promises, and there were 40-some that applied to EPA, the Interior Department, the Department of Energy, and a couple other little environmental things. And, you know, every time that he fulfilled one of those promises, and he did fulfill most of them, uh, when he gave a press conference, he, he always pointed out, you know, I'm not like those other guys who get elected. I, I keep my promises. And that's, you know, that's really stunning and, and so different than what we're used to in Washington, which is we assume that everything that the people we elect say is immediately inoperative as soon as they get elected. Well, I think that that's because that's usually the case. And and that's what makes Trump so interesting is that you know, notwithstanding what some might see as his flaws, he 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 gives the old college try to get done what he says he's going to do, and in many cases he does get it done. It's funny the way you describe the EPA team is exactly how I would 
have characterized the, the energy team that I was part of. You know, it was led by first Mike McKenna, who's a, a Power Hour guest, and then Tom Pyle, also Power Hour guest. And they sort of fall into that same category that you were talking about. Not, yes, um, yes. You know, these aren't lifelong bureaucrats. And most of that team was like that. There were some who were, but certainly the people who put in most of the work, I would say. Not all of the work, but most of the work were like that. Mm -hmm. And and I share your your sort of perspective, Myron, on working there. I had zero desire to work in that godforsaken building, and and I just God, I, I can't even imagine working there unless I had the job to shut it down. If I had the job to shut it down, then I would suck it up for a little while. But otherwise, it's just a horrible, horrible place. Bureaucrats are just. This is not a comment on every individual bureaucrat. I know I have friends who are bureaucrats. But I'm going to make a broad generalization. They are, when you're in a building with bureaucrats, whether it's the Department of Energy or the DMV, it's just like, it's depressing, and I don't know what they do, and I know that they're just sucking money from the economy, and it makes me really hard to be motivated to be a positive presence while I'm there. So that's what I think about that. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's move it up a few years. I want to talk a little bit about the 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 Dubai conference that mm -hmm. is, you know, I think I think starting next week. So we talked about the the Paris conference and and some of the other ones. The next COP is in Dubai. What are they going to achieve there? Anything? What's the objective? What are your What are your thoughts on 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 that whole operation? I, I'm not going to be in Dubai and. I actually haven't, I didn't go last year either when it was in Sharm el-Sheikh, the fancy resort on the Red Sea in Egypt. The, there's, a, there's a standard formula for these COPs, conferences of the parties. We're at COP28 now. Uh, the, the world is on the brink and only important people flying in from all around the world, prime ministers, presidents, kings, dictators, environment ministers, economic ministers, these are the only people who can save it. <laughs> and, and the world is on the brink and everything looks like it's going to collapse about the middle of the second week. And then somehow they all bring it together and usually a day late, instead of concluding on a, the second Friday, they usually conclude on the Saturday or even in Paris, it was even the Sunday. And then they come out after negotiating all night and they all link arms on a stage and they all announce that, yes, they have made so much progress that they can continue talking uh, during the next year in preparation for the next COP. <laughs> and that's the victory that they, they've all agreed that they're going to continue working and, on making progress. And behind the scenes, what's really happening is that these, all of these COPs are centered around one thing. It's the developed world, the rich world, versus the less developed poor world. And the poor world is only interested in the global warming issue if there's money in it. So what, what they're always asking behind the scenes and often in, pub, in, 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 the, in the public meetings and, and sessions is where's the cash? And so 
Copenhagen in 2009 was saved from complete disaster when Secretary Clinton took up an idea that had been, I forget where it came from, it was a few years earlier, to set up the Green Climate Fund. And then in, two, in Warsaw in 2013, maybe we've got the loss and damage mechanism. So they keep setting up new funds to transfer wealth from kind of, do, you know, stupid people in, in the West and send it to poor countries. God knows what they'll do with it. I hope they, you know, spend it on, you know, parties and, and, and useful things like that. Maybe a coal plant. Yeah, whatever. But the fact is that they keep setting up these what they call mechanisms, but nobody ever puts in very much money. And so they put in just enough money to keep the poor countries coming to keep asking, where's the cash? And that's what, that's what these are really about. It's about wealth redistribution because the poor countries, you know, they need money. They, they don't have economic policies, most of them, to attract investment. And so they think that there can be free money from, from some kind of UN program called the Green Climate Fund or the Loss and Damage Mechanism or some, I mean, there's several, there's the Global Environmental Facility, there's, there's two or three others. But, you know, these, these accounts are always so much smaller than promised. The, the Green Climate Fund, the promise in 2009 was that the, the, the developed world, governments and private companies and so on, would provide $100 billion per year. Well, the, the head of the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the, the Secretariat, Christiana Figueres at the time, a few years later started saying, well, you know, $100 billion is just the floor. We're going to need to really ramp that up. It needs to be a lot more than $100 billion a year. Well, no, nowhere near $100 billion a year is being put into, that, into the Green Climate Fund. It may be $10 billion, but $10 billion spread out of, amongst 150 countries doesn't go very far. So, you know, the money will never be there, but the, but the poor countries keep hoping that somehow the cash is finally going to start flowing. And that's, that's, what, that's what the whole process is about. Myron, when you say it's rich countries versus poor countries, the, the dynamic you're describing, it's not... It's not that they, the, 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 the lever being pulled or the, the debate is not about global warming. It's about in order for the rich countries to get what they want, which is a broad consensus over global warming, they need the poor countries to come along. And the poor countries would never do that unless they are paid to do so. And that these so-called mechanisms are what you use to do it. So the, the, when, it, when they're not versus each other because of some big environmental dispute, it's about building consensus for what the, the developed countries want to do, which is to impose this global warming agenda. Is that, would that be fair? That's absolutely right. And, you know, the, the, the leaders in this uh, with the begging bowl are these uh, island states, the Pacific island states that are supposedly going to, uh, you know, be submerged because of sea level rise. And so they're the ones who, who always lead on these discussions because they're in danger of, you know, imminent extinction as, as countries. 
But of course, none of these islands uh, ever sink because they're coral atolls and they grow to take account of the sea level rise. And so, uh, in fact, most of them are actually expanding in acreage. Uh, a couple of them, or one of them at least, they're putting in a, a brand new airport to handle more tourists. You know, on the land that's been that's that's arisen out of the out of the the, the ocean. And, you know, the whole thing is a big scam, and I think most people involved know it's a big scam. But that's, as you say, that is the, it's the, it's the grease that keeps the wheels of the, of the Western agenda going. And, you know... So what, what does the West have to gain? Like, why are, why are they doing this? I don't know. It's hard to figure out. Some people actually believe in the global warming you know, that it's an existential crisis. I think some people who say that don't know what existential crisis means. I think the right. president is probably one of those. But some people do believe it, but others, and this is not just the climate industrial complex, this is the kind of climate academic complex. There's a huge amount of money and power to, to be had for commercially unviable technologies if if government says that that's what has to be used. So instead of coal, oil, and natural gas, which provides 80% of the world's energy, if you can force uh, the productive part of the economy, that is the, the coal, oil, and natural gas, to fund people who otherwise wouldn't be able to make it in the market with, with wind turbines or solar panels or electric vehicles, you you... There's there's just a huge amount of money here. There's trillions yeah. of dollars to be made off of the back of the productive economy. And so I think that's what keeps it going. I think, you know, the size of, of the environmental establishment or the global warming establishment, the size of these NGOs, the, the, the groups, is you know, they're all hundreds of millions of dollars a year organizations. And so there's just and power. And, and academic advancement, you know, if if you're a, a not very good scientist, but you can have a, a junior academic position and you can come up with some uh, semi-plausible study about some aspect of global warming, I won't mention a certain stick here. <laughs> if you can come up with, it's, it's you know, one of those games we play on ice. Um, I, if you can come up with something like that, you suddenly not only become a full professor, but you get to be the director of a big new program at a major university with, with huge amounts of government grants coming in. And, you know, we could talk about this separately, but, you know, the whole problem with our scientific establishment at our universities is that they're now completely under the thumb of federal funding because yeah. that's where almost all their funding comes from, the National Science Foundation, the EPA, the Department of Energy, I mean, we could, NASA... No, we could go down the list. So I, I think, you know, there, there are mixed motives involved here, but I would say, and this is something that CEI's founder and, and longtime president, now retired Fred Smith, always brought up, you know, thank God for China, because they play us for fools successfully. They, they, they go to all these conferences and they make all these pledges, but in fact, they're the ones who are driving the world economic engine by not paying any attention to cutting greenhouse gas emissions. They, they now use half the world's coal. Uh, their emissions go up every year. They're, 
their greenhouse gas emissions now are larger than the United States, the European Union, uh, Britain, and Japan combined. So, you know, they're, you know, they don't believe it. They just, they just mouth the words and then go about their business of building their economy. Right. You know, I, I, I agree with all that. I think that there are a number of things. I, I love this subject, so I just want to talk about it for another minute. I think there are a number of things. I think there's always this ongoing struggle between democracy, or that is the democratization of power and economy for society, that which, is, which occurred because of the discovery of hydrocarbons and the enlightened thought of people like Adam Smith that allowed for the Industrial Revolution, everything that occurred through that, like that democratization, and this and and that the struggle of that opposed to the exact opposite of that, which are these forces of elitism that have manifested themselves through things like like 20th century dictatorship or before that through monarchy and through all these things. There's always that struggle. And I think this is the current manifestation of that struggle that always goes on between the people and between the elite. I think that I used to just think it was just those daggone communists, because <laughs> when you look at what the economy is or what the economy would be if the Biden agenda were to be fully implemented, it's no different than straight up communism. I mean, you have consolidated control over the means of production from a small group of elites, a proletariat, and, and that's, that's communism. But I think that I, I, I think those are sort of grand overarching sort of things. I think you nailed it, which is you just have all these entrenched interests who that the system has until it collapses has self almost has self regulated toward pushing resources toward them and eventually it'll collapse. But until it does, you got certain people getting paid and they're going to keep lying or, or, or lying to themselves in order to propagate this whole narrative. Anyway, that's I think I think it's a conversation and a field of discussion that needs to happen more and more in in not just public policy but academia because it's driving everything it really is one of the central organizing forces of everything that's happening in public policy in the world almost yes i absolutely jack and i i would point out that the most i you know we've been working for a long time pointing out and i know heritage has too that the the mandate and the subsidies for renewable power and the electric grid are are making the electric grid they're making electric prices go up and they're also at the same time making the supply of electricity less reliable and we are now reaching the point where at least in some states and surprisingly Texas is now in the lead not California we're looking at at regular and and very widespread blackouts. You can't run a modern economy without reliable electricity. But but I think the whole problem with the electric grid is now has now been overtaken by the problem with our auto industry because the auto industry seems intent on destroying itself by doing whatever the federal government tells it to do and and they are I don't know, we might be saved by some smaller makers in, in Asia because the big guys seem to want to 
to do whatever the government says, and they are they are so dependent upon these subsidies for for electric vehicles, and so so under the thumb of government because of the fuel economy standards and requirements that they they've forgotten that they actually have customers who need to be able to buy cars so that they can drive to where they need to go. So I you know this is this is the the place we've come to by going down this path of of paying out ever greater sums to to corporate interests with their hands in the government till. Well, I I I, you know, I think that they must have read the the coal memo because you see the auto industry doing the same thing coal did, which is, <laughs> you know, and good point. And, <laughs> and here's, here's what they need. So, so that obviously didn't work, even though you still hear coal folks and other people in the hydrocarbon industry talking about carbon capture and sequestration as if that's not the rope that's going to ultimately hang them. But the, the lesson that the auto industry should have learned from that is that there's no, there is no compromise here. Like these aren't, these aren't policies that are meant to make the internal combustion engine ultimately win. It is there to kill them. And I think the bet that the auto industry is making, I don't know, this is just, you know, speculation, because I think a lot of these established industries assume this, that they will ultimately be bailed out. That when no one buys, they'll, they'll go along and stay in the good graces of the, of the, the bureaucrats and special interests by saying whatever they, it is they have to say. And then whenever it all fails, they'll be like, well, we need a bailout. And unfortunately, we have a government that certainly since 2009, if not before, has made, has built entire policy agendas around bailouts. So look, it, it's also screwed up. And I have to correct myself. I said, I said the, the, the proletariat earlier. I meant the Politburo. Just so <laughs> everyone, whenever they're making their comments, I know the difference between the proletariat and the Politburo. And who and where the power lies. So anyway, yeah. but uh, Jack, I I agree with you. I think the auto industry, the automakers believe that at the end of the day, if following what the federal government says, the Biden administration says, doesn't work out, they will be bailed out. But I think the thing that all Americans who value their automobility. The fact that they can drive to where they want and need to go in a, in a car, uh, I think we need to be aware that the auto industry may be bailed out, but they may be so weakened and destroyed that they won't be actually be able to provide the millions and millions of vehicles that need to be sold in the market every year to keep the whole thing running. And so it's this is this is should be of great interest to consumers that okay, it's just another stupid industry that that thinks that the government will will always save them as long as they go along. But in this case, it's getting so bad, and I think it could be happening in the utility industry too, that the the amount of damage being done is gonna it's gonna be very hard to repair in such a way that it will meet what the market, what consumers need in the market. So I think that with the auto industry, we are seeing some significant pushback from all sides. We just saw, I don't know if you, you saw Myron, but there was a, a letter published today from thousands and thousands of auto dealers saying, yo, 
Biden, you need to pump your brakes on yes. this thing. Yes. And we saw that coming from we saw a letter from from Capitol Hill Republicans, even Capitol Hill Democrats and people in the, in the, the so-called uh, environmental justice community. There's really a broad pushback coalescing around this idea that we should have a forced, a compulsed transition to electric cars. Do you think it will be successful? Well, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that letter because it's very significant that it comes from the auto dealers, not the automakers. Right. For a couple reasons. One is the auto dealers are very dependent upon the automakers because it's actually the automakers who provide the product that they sell in their showrooms. So they have traditionally taken, I, this is a terrible metaphor, they have traditionally taken a back seat to to the automakers and just done what the automakers have said. So right. I think it's very significant that they're stepping forward and are taking a leadership role because the automakers won't. And this the second point is this is what's driving this is that the dealers are much closer to auto buyers than the automakers are. It's the people coming into the showroom and are being shown vehicles where the price has gone up 20, 30, 40% over what it was a few years ago. And they're going, oh my God, I can't afford a new car. Mm -hmm. And I just want to, I, I, I bring that up because people need to understand that although there's a $7,500 subsidy for buying an electric vehicle, that's, that's the maximum, but so, so $7,500, but the, but the automakers are losing huge amounts of money on the electric vehicles that they're selling. I think Ford, somebody did the calculation, Ford in the last quarter lost 30-some thousand dollars for every electric vehicle that they sold. But in order to make that up, the automakers have to raise the price of conventional vehicles. Right. So when you look, if you're in rural America and you need a big pickup truck, not an electric, but a real pickup truck that will haul things and has that you can actually fill it up in five minutes <laughs> out, out in the middle of the winter, out in the middle of nowhere, you know? I mean, if when you go to the, sh the showroom and you see that that pickup truck that you need is sixty or $70,000, you need to understand that a considerable chunk of that is actually going, the automakers are, are raising the cost of their top-end vehicles in order to pay for the, their electric vehicles. And so I don't know whether it's $5,000 or $10,000, but a lot of money is being added, a lot of cost is being added on to the price of new conventional vehicles to pay for electric vehicles. And, you know, people should just be up in arms about that. Myron, I just have to correct you on one thing. You obviously have not been on a new truck lot recently because if you're for sixty thousand dollars, you're getting an old jalopy. Okay, okay. I, I'm yeah, I, I look. I, I come. I come from the sticks. You know, we don't get we don't get into town to look at the prices very often. Right. But I I am aware that they've gone up. They are hundred k. Yeah, I, I am. I I I flirt with the idea every once in a while of buying a new truck because my truck which is well used and has dents and mud on it, has 200,000 miles. So I need a truck. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. every time I go to look at them, they are so expensive. I mean, you can get a truck. You can get a, a, a lower and mid-range truck for $60,000. But you can also get a mid-range truck for $80,000. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. It's really unbelievable. Now, 
I mean, we, we I have a bunch of other things I want to talk about. We but we are coming up on our hour. I want to just mention some quick hit things because I just want to get your thoughts on them. I know you've done a lot of work on on conservation. Could you talk a little bit about sort of how a conservative looks at conservation work versus a liberal? I think this is a, another one of these conversations that that we've tried to get going and, and sometimes gains momentum. But I know your views on this are, are I just want to get your views on this out there because I know that they're they're spot on. Yeah, and they're very much in line with the work that the Heritage Foundation has done over a long period of time. I, I think particularly of uh, Becky Norton Dunlop and Rob Gordon, I should mention. There's an urban-rural split, and the people who know about protecting the environment and conservation are rural people, and the people who drive the debate are the ones who contribute to the Wilderness Society and the Sierra Club and get their calendar and think that the people who actually live in the environment can't be trusted to take care of it. Uh, the, the good stewards of the land are the landowners, the people who have an investment and who cannot make money on their land if they don't take care of it. They might make money for a year or two, but a few years down the line, they're going to have a real problem uh, supporting themselves. And they're smart enough to realize that. They're smart the enough. They're not, these, these people may not be educated in the way of sitting in front of a computer monitor the way I do and typing stuff in, but they, they, they are highly intelligent if they're not as, as uh, adept with modern media as, as urban people. And the second thing is, and this follows directly from it, the biggest threat to environmental quality in America is the federal estate. The federal government owns 27% of the land in this country, most of it in the West and Alaska, and they are destroying the environment and in the West and Alaska, and they are destroying the economy. And they're doing it by closing up the land for resource production and for management. And, and the best example of that is, instead of logging our national forests and producing lumber, we now burn up our forests with catastrophic fires because of the massive fuel buildup. That's, you mean it's not global warming? That's just the, yeah, exactly. And that's that's just one example. There are many others, but we need we need to understand that the way to save the environment, the first biggest step we could take is to start to defederalize the West and Alaska, and and transfer that land. As, as the Utah Transfer of Public Lands Act of 2012 demands, at least for the state of Utah, transfer that land to the state, and I believe eventually a lot of it into private ownership. That's, that's the, I believe that the key thing, and I'm, I should say I'm, I'm very pleased to be a, a, a board member of the American Lands Council, which supports Utah's efforts to, to defederalize Utah. I agree with you, Myron, but you know, this is one of those issues, I mean, obviously, you know, that conservatives get sideways on sometimes because they do want to conserve a lot of that federal land for public use. And I think that if this, I think that approach falls under the same dynamic that we were talking about earlier with the voluntary stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. it should be looked at through the same lens because the federally conserved stuff, even if it's conserved for, you know, uh, you know, sort of stereotypical conservative things like hunting and fishing and, and that sort of thing. Um, not to mention grazing and, and, and other productive use. 
it's under federal control and it's but a a a a a, a, a pen you know a, a a pen writing exercise to make it all go away because they will they will re apply some other use for it and, and we saw this with the, the the new conservation easement regulations where they want to make it so that you can buy conservation leases or lease land out for conservation and they say no it's for conservation but when you look deep into that regulation it's clear that they will take all use away from that or they have the ability to take all use away from that i think it's tremendously dangerous and you're exactly right if we want to keep these lands open for public use or access to the public it needs to get out of the federal hands as soon as possible because there's no there's no future i see that given the trajectory we're on where the federal government can be trusted to not only maintain but maintain the health of these lands but maintain access to them for the things that americans want them for yeah that's absolutely right jack and i, I would just add one more point the, the problem with public ownership of land in in is that the managers have don't have the right incentives private landowners have the right incentives that is you take care of your land so that it will keep producing you keep it in a healthy condition the the public land managers have political incentives they are rewarded for doing whatever the current regime wants and sometimes that's good sometimes the current rulers here in washington have the right ideas but often they don't and and so private ownership private ownership of resources gets the incentives right now the last thing i want you to just go over real quickly it's something that i've heard you talk about many times in the past and that's what the right oh, now, then i want you to follow up with some something positive like what do we need to do to get this stuff turned around but so the two last things <laughs> what is the right up against how big is the left's effort in this area and sort of put that in perspective for folks and then and then tell me something positive myron anything please well i'll start by telling you something very positive look okay the the, the global warming bandwagon has been going since the early 1990s and it's remarkable how little they've actually done uh, given the vast resources that they brought to bear political resources money in in politics it's remarkable how little they've gotten done and how what a good chance we have to do we have to reverse what they have done and i would i would just mention two things uh, the next conservative president can get us out of the paris climate treaty permanently by sending the treaty to the senate for its advice and second a conservative congress can repeal all the subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 that Senator Joe Manchin gave us. And I point out that not a single Republican voted for that, and every Republican in the House this spring voted to repeal the subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, we haven't lost nearly as much as we should have in terms of policy and in terms of economic activity, and we have a chance to get it back. So I think that's the good news. All right. I got it. I'm going to bring us back down. I need to ask this one question, Myron. Are those Republicans who voted to 
repeal the subsidies for the IRA in meaningless votes, the same ones who voted to repeal Obamacare in meaningless votes, but when it came time to actually do it, you know, where were they? Is that the same? I fear that's the same place we end up on this. Well, I'm more optimistic. Probably I'll be disappointed, but, you know, there just aren't that many Mitt Romneys in Congress, and he's retiring and there, and you know, John McCain was another one who voted who who he wouldn't have gotten reelected if he hadn't promised to vote against Obamacare. And then when he was the deciding vote to repeal it, he he voted against what he'd promised to get reelected. I don't think there are that many Republicans who have that much arrogance to to do that kind of thing. So, and we're getting rid of Mitt Romney. So I, I'm I'm hopeful that the next Congress and the next president will will be in a much better position to actually undo some of these disastrous policies that have been, most of them not enacted, most of them have been through regulatory action, and those can be undone. All right, well, I'm not going to say any more what I think, because that's a good, positive note to end on. So there we have it. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoy the podcast, Tell your friends and family and colleagues to check us out. And don't forget to email us. Now, before we end, Myron, is there anything that you'd like to point people towards on social media or anything like that? I avoid social media. Uh, Me too. (laughs) I do too. Uh, CEI has a website, CEI.org. I'd also encourage you to check out the American Lands Council uh, and join it. And, you know, our site has limited resources, but we have lots of, of, of good people. We have lots of talent. We have lots of energy. And what we need is every group on our site needs, needs more resources to compete with the, with the resources of the left-wing environmental groups, which tend to be 100 times, even 1,000 times more than what we have. Yeah, yeah. Well, Myron, I really want to thank you. I'm, I'm not just doing shtick when I say you've inspired me for years. You're a titan. And that just that, that, that you are a friend and colleague that I can turn to to get clarity on some of these issues. And you've been there to help me out for a long time. So thank you for coming on the Power Hour. I really do appreciate that. Thank you, Jack. And I appreciate everything that you've been doing for a long time and with just tremendous dedication and consistency. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now that we've patted each other on the back, I have one more, one more back to Pat, and that is that of John Pop. John, thank you for producing this show and being an awesome thank you. sidekick, co-host, and, partner in crime. And Jack, you're right. Myron is a rock star. But I found a sign, Myron Ebel Criminal. Yes. If I find that Myron and send it to you, will you sign it for me? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll hang it in my office proudly. So thank you. <laughs> And then the most important backs to Pat are those of all of you out there who took some time out of your day to listen to this podcast. I want to thank you all sincerely. I do appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, y'all.